You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. Hey, welcome to another episode of Two Beers Until Phrenesis. We're going to be talking about drone strikes and all kinds of crazy shit today. Um, so you guys recently just did an essay on uh, Lebanas and what was it, Lebanas and drone strikes and then Gator and genetic engineering. Should we uh, start by giving some context about who Emmanuel Lebanas is, why his ideas about ethics are important, and then we'll get onto shit like drone strikes. So Emmanuel Lebanas is a, um, uh, was he Russian by So he was born birth? in what is now Lithuania, mm. but then it was Russia, and this was in 1906. Um, and he, at the time, this was obviously World War One. so his family, because he was a Jew, his family was uh, persecuted and all that sort of thing. But because he spoke Russian pretty well, he managed to sort of hide and keep, you know, keep his identity as a Jew fairly secret. Um, and then I think around, I, I don't remember exactly when, but around he studied, he moved to France at some point, managed to get out of the USSR, I think after the war. Yeah, did he serve in World War II as a translator because he knew Russian? So then that's... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so... Uh, but basically managed to pretty much escape through right. the Holocaust. Yeah, he, he managed to escape. He escaped to France, and that's where he did his uh, you know, his studying um, in philosophy and this sort of thing. Yeah, and his wife was spared because uh, she, she worked in a, a convent, I think. Whose essay was it? Was it yours? Do you want yeah, uh, direct background? <laughs> yeah, go on, Levinas. Um Even though he escaped, that doesn't mean that he didn't see shit. So mm. he, he yeah, saw he a lot. Prisoner of war, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Even though he managed to survive World War Two, World War One, whatever, he still saw for for everyone in that territory, yeah. people who were moving in and out of Russia and Germany, whatever, that it would be pretty much impossible not to see horrible, horrendous things. So I think that is kind of the impetus for his philosophy and his ethics after that. Yeah, definitely. I think the whole continental and, and existential traditions are basically trying to make sense of World War Two, the Holocaust. And a lot of that nasty shit, basically, I think mm-hmm. it kind of arises from that. And yeah, definitely for Levinas. I mean, yeah, like you say, even though he got through all that alive, a lot of his family didn't. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, his mindset's going to be completely changed after that. So um, yeah, his, his Jewish perspective is particularly important given the context. And I think that's obviously later on would be very influential in how his philosophy and how he sort of um, was trying to explain institutions and explain what was going on. Yeah, so, uh, and, like, he, I think he has to be seen in the wider context of existentialist and continental tradition, which is a kind of a move away, deliberate move away from uh, conventional narratives and traditional religions and power structures and things. And I, I think, particularly for Levinas, it was this move away from dialectical materialism and, and fascism and things. He wants to basically distance himself from those kinds of things and work out a new way of conceptualising ethics yeah, because the previous narratives had failed. And I think the, the Jewish influence is also important because he's, uh, although he avoids traditional theology, he um, he often, he looked into the Talmud and Talmudic verses and things and how to, um, how to kind of grapple with a lot of the Jewish ideas, even though he's basically an atheist. The Jewish element from a kind of cultural perspective is uh, kind of important. But then he does talk about God as well. So um, you're probably best to talk about his view of, ethics 
Okay. Should we talk about phenomenology as a concept first? Yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah, let's establish that. So obviously he, he is part of this school that is called phenomenology. Founded Edmund Husserl, what's his name? Husserl. Husserl. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know how to pronounce it. Probably, yeah, probably again around the turn of the 20th century we're talking here. Um, probably a bit earlier, maybe with um, Husserl. But phenomenology as a school, essentially what they started to do was take um, the aspects of our consciousness as the first principle of you know, what we should be studying and what we should be talking about. Um, and it was more about. I guess, yeah, as a very rough explanation, yeah, it's, yeah, it's so like to do our, with... Our experiences of the world. Right, our experience of the world are the first principle of things, and it's trying to identify the differences in our conscious experiences and what what, you know, what separates one conscious experience from another in terms of qualia, etc. Um, maybe you can explain that slightly better, but... Our experience of the world kind of comes before any statements we can make about it. So right. this experiential dimension is what comes first. Yeah. Before cognition, before right. thinking, before proposition. I suppose another good way to put it is it's, it refutes the object, um, the object version of reality. So the sort of Cartesian, the world is made of objects, and then you also have the conscious observer of those objects. It sort of takes that and goes, well, no, it's like the conscious observer and what he observes is the first principle, is the fundamental thing, rather than the actual object of being independent of the consciousness. Yeah. Um, and then if we put that in an ethical context... Um, take utilitarianism it's not the case that we'd act upon utilitarianism we you know we'd be given a situation think about it and think what is the principle of utility is that we'd act and then theory gets applied to that rather than the other way around so experience and the stuff happens first before theory does so i think that kind of initial experience before thinking about an, an instance is very important for Levinas. yeah so the, the whole basis of his ethics is kind of being hit by something that you see, before you think about it, something has happened in your head, you instantly, before you have time to kind of categorise or anything about what's happened, your reaction is there straight away. Yeah, he, I think he calls it um, an affect, mm -hmm. something that happens to you. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how he thinks about ethics. He thinks ethics is something that happens to you as opposed to something you conceptualise. So he would be very critical of something like the trolley problem because um, he thinks that's, that's just not how humans act. That's not how we approach ethical situations. He would probably say that before you're thinking about where to pull the lever to save six, to save the, you know, to kill six, to save the, um, the, the cancer doctor, um, and, you know, which one's better, he would say that first and foremost, you're, you're hit with, um, you're hit with you're hit, it's kind of humanity mm -hmm. of the situation and, and the humanity of the person involved through the face. Yeah. So he calls that the other. Yeah. It's not the other as in, like, the... Is it, is it Heidegger who talks about subject and other master and slave? Yeah, yeah Heidegger's talking about it yeah. very ontologically. It's not, it's not that. It's literally pretty much just another person. It's not yeah. a, a distinct alien category. Right. It's just another person. Because that was a bit confusing for me when yeah. I was going into yeah. Levinas. It was like, OK, I was thinking immediately about the conception of the other, as in, you know, the Heidegger yeah. sort of, like, other as something other than the self in the sense that you have the self and the other yeah. or the he's, other but he's, but he's actually yeah he's, it's really simple he's literally right. just saying other people yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose you've mentioned the face and I think that's important to unpack so like what in, in what way was the face the most important thing for Levinas because if you're looking at someone's ass you don't <laughs> <laughs> you don't really get a sense yeah. of their humanity yeah. like 
So no, that, that's the key. Is it, it's dehumanisation until you see the face for eleven hours. Yeah, yeah. He was a prisoner of war. I think. Am I right talking about how um, there was a dog in this prisoner of war camp? Yeah, don't know the source. Um, so there was a dog in this prisoner of war camp, and the dog was the only thing there that treated everyone else uh, like a human. Right. And um, basically, they'd go out, do their work in wherever they were doing. When they come back to the camp, the dog would be jumping up at them and be happy because. I guess the, the the idea is that the dog doesn't have any cognition of actually I should categorise these people as lesser than like well, human. No judgment, yeah. So they shot the dog. The, the Nazis shot the, the dog because they realised this it was dog humanising the yeah. Jews. Yeah. Um, so the whole idea for Levinas is that before you get to assert violence on another person, say you're going to kill someone, before you get to do that, if someone turns and looks at you, and you look at them back in the face. Hidden within the face is the commandment, the commandment, thou shall not kill. So even though he's an atheist, as you said, yeah. he doesn't really... He's got Jewish philosophy later in life, whatever. But he, he says that it's God's commandment in the face. Yeah, because I, I find this kind of difficult because he uses this language of God, yet he's an atheist, yeah. and it's... Yeah. Yeah, because like you were saying earlier, I think a lot of his writing is almost written quite theologically in the way it looks and the way it's structured, which is yeah. obviously influenced from um, Jewish heritage. I um, think he kind of wants to say that 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 um, experiential quality of seeing another person is equivocal to an idea of God. That it's such a powerful yeah. image. I, I, I get, that's my interpretation. Yeah, of what I he's think so. Saying anyway, yeah. I think it. He's trying to suggest that it just stops you in your tracks, basically. Mm. You see them as, um, rather than an object or something that you can use for you, you see them as a person. So he says that, similar to, who is it similar to where you, uh, you go to? I, I'm thinking of Kant straight away. When, when you, you say using someone as a means well, to an means end. Means to an end. Yeah, I'm, I'm And then there's someone can. else who was talking about how you go through the world without... That's Heidegger. Heidegger. Yeah, the, 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 so people are in... in uh, yeah, Heidegger. You see someone philosophy. on the train, you don't... Yeah, you right. see someone on train, or you see someone that someone's serving you at the checkouts. Yeah, uh, and I always forget these two confuse the wrong way around. But it's ready to hand and present to hand. Yeah, uh, the work, the, the the door is not present to you. Oh right, until yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. You can go through a door; it's not present to you yeah. until there's a problem with exactly, the door. Yeah. The door hits you. So it's in like the face. if you're driving yeah. a car, it's like the car is not really part yeah. of in terms of like your phenomenology. It's like you don't you don't really care about. It's literally just this thing getting you from A to B. It's not a car. It only becomes like this complex part of your experience the minute it breaks down you're like oh my god this is giant machine giant, I've, I've, I've just suddenly realised I'm in a yeah. weird complicated machine that I don't know how to fix so and, it, yeah. if we apply that to the face you're saying that we go through the world like typically not understanding uh, so we go through the world um, blindly using people as objects using things as objects seeing, seeing the world as something that you can control yeah basically until you see the face and that breaks this kind of control, drive, whatever you've got on you, and you see them as someone else rather than something that you can use. Yeah. I think he, he ties the face with discourse, but the first thing you see is the face. And he talks a lot about how it's not the face in resistance to you, but it's the fact that you can see them as someone who you could have killed or you could have like harmed, and they're not putting any resistance up to it. Because they're just like looking at you. Well, I know he uses the language of guilt. Yeah. A lot. He, he thinks that ethics should be conceptualised around shame. 
um, sh- shame in in relevance to the the re- revelation of the face mm. and, the, and the human, the, like um, our, and our demand, like straight away that uh, when someone looks at you, it, yeah. when you uh, kind of look at someone in the eyes, it immediately. Uh, Think that what it, he, it puts a command on you. It, yeah, it's, it's a plea it's for a, help. Yeah, it's a command. He says it makes a demand for your for you to treat them ethically. Mm. But what 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 is this then? So because he's not this isn't like a, a, a scientific kind of. He's not saying no. that this is. Right. Well, I think that's where the phenomenology yeah. comes yeah. in because it's like yeah. you've got to remember his conception of how he's talking about these as as a, you know a fundamental first principle. Yeah. Um, is he's talking about this literally purely in terms of, well, we're taking um, aspects of our conscious experience and he's just putting the most fundamental, important part of our uh, conscious experience being the face, I guess, in this case. Yeah. Um, and being that being the thing that moves people the most. And, I mean, confusingly, he calls it the ethics or, he, you know, he calls it his ethics. Um, but what he's really referring to is not ethics. He's referring to this as like an actual first principle. Yeah, there isn't any kind of doctrine of it. There's not like... With candle was like, do not treat people as a means to an end. Yeah, like, and the whole, kingdom of ends type. Yeah, thing. don't do things unless you can universalize them as things yeah. that would be acceptable for everyone. Yeah, he's not talking about that kind of ethics. He's yeah. literally just using the word ethics to describe yeah. this as, experience. an experience. Yeah, it's it's all experiential. And that like uh, kind of kind of meta how the how this experience is the first thing. Yeah. To to yeah in, in terms of our relation to the to everything. He says in. Instantly, when you see the face, you've he puts it as kind of a burden, but he says you've got a responsibility for this person. Mm. Uh, that yeah, they, they place responsibility yeah, straight upon you. you. But um, he also says that it doesn't matter if they have a responsibility for you. It's not like um, it's, it's not a reciprocal not, relationship. Yeah, yeah. He says that if it were a reciprocal relationship, it wouldn't be ethics because ethics isn't something you should try and get something out of. He says that ethics isn't a bargain. Yeah, he, he, he says it's not a power dynamic, but no. then he says it's not reciprocal. Yeah, I just find some of these concepts a little bit odd. Like, it, it, sometimes it's quite yeah. simple, but then in some sense it's like, right. I don't know. It's where it starts to border on an ontology where it gets a bit yeah. confused. Or at least and what's more confusing is that he thinks traditional metaphysics is ontology, and he's critical of that because, obviously, uh, traditional metaphysics, so the, the substance of stuff, when we're talking uh, sort of in Greek terms or we're talking in Christian terms traditionally that always comes with a language of judgment and he wants to call that ontology because ontology is the the idea of being and he thinks that when uh, within traditional structures the essence of stuff had it came with this preconception of lesser and higher beings and telos everything had an end or a purpose and so all it came wrapped up in the language of judgment and he's critical of that. He calls that ontology. But then what we would probably call ontology, the four of us, is what he's doing, mm. which is what makes it all the more complicated. Yeah, but sort of kind of doing it and then kind of not doing it. That's, yeah. that's why I get confused because I, I try to like look at it and think of it as some kind of, you know, almost like metaphysical assumption about reality or at least, you know, taking that phenomenological view. So we're talking about, you know, not object, object facts or external experience, but taking these first principles of our experience as being the fundamental principles or axioms of how he's building up how we should act or reality or whatever. And then, you know, in his case, using the face as the, you know, the principled idea or whatever. And, and you just, you're kind of thinking, well, what he's trying to talk about here is, yeah, what is the most fundamental or important thing, part of reality or part of our experience? 
Um, and it's and it's kind of difficult to, at least for me, I, you know, I find it kind of confusing. Like exactly which point is this? You know, is he just talking about um, a fundamental aspect of reality? And at which point is he just talking about ethics or whatever, whatever he's calling ethics, which is not ethics? And yeah, you know. have you guys read any stuff on art? No, because um, it's quite interesting when he talks about the human face in art. And it, again, the, uh, this ties in with um, slightly more conventional Jewish thought. I mean, you guys obviously know you can't draw uh, faces in a lot of Jewish art because it's seen as idolatrous. Um, but I think then we, we confuse the idea of idolatry in Judaism and the idea of idolatry in Christianity. Uh, it's not a sin. It's not so much an affront to God because you got to, uh, God is a lot more metaphorical in Judaism. It's really just this useful idea of... of um, all relates back to, to kind of more secular ethics right. humans. So when a Jew, Jewish person says you can't draw a human's face because it's an affront to God, what that's really saying is um, let's value humans. Let's treat them with a, a kind of essence of divinity. Right, the avoidance of um, ideology in some sense, I guess. Yeah, it, so it, it's like it's something that kind of stops objectification of of people. Oh, okay. Because so when he's you, more right, okay. Yeah. So when you um when you draw a human face, you kind of reduce them to this still image. You reduce them to an object. And I think this so uh, uh, the language of God helps with that, but it's not a literal God. So I think that's where um Levinas gets his idea of God from. But so in a in a in a Jewish context, um that's why abstract art is so um prevalent within within Jewish art because right. Um, even in avoiding some yeah, and, avoiding okay, forms in general I didn't know that yeah I, I really um, I never used to like art and then I started looking at uh, abstract Jewish art right. it was like that fucking blue just shades of blue and it's just like because I, I normally used to think oh it's just modern art it's a load of crap <laughs> <laughs> and, but then I'm like no actually that, that makes a lot of sense you, you've deliberately avoided forms but you've tried to communicate something very primal right. and that's quite interesting I mean I, I wouldn't set some time aside to paint it myself or anything or do yeah. anything like that but suppose, just just yeah. as an aside it's like it's quite interesting yeah well, i suppose the other confusing thing about levinas is like you just mentioned his use of god and this is the other thing i yeah. didn't really i didn't understand in exactly the context in which he uses god but i think if you look at it in, um, yeah so in that context of just right. it's just this idea that helps us conceptualize humans um if you see god in another person and you know, I mean, you can't really, it's kind of irreducible after that. Just seeing, as I see God in you, it's very hard for me to kill you. But um, I could probably try. <laughs> no, but, um, but it's, um, and it doesn't really get much more reducible than that, the essence of God, because God is really just kind of a, a metaphor, I think. I mean, that's how I read really Levinas. Okay. Know. Yeah, I think that the whole, the use of God is just, I think he's trying to explain how it's an affront to you. Mm. Like, because if you if you saw God, you'd be like fucking hell, that, yeah. that's God. Right. You'd you'd stop whatever you were doing and just be like focusing on this right. one thing, yeah. and it's and it's unexplainable. You can't say, oh well, God looks like he's wearing a robe, he's got a beard. It's kind mm. of like a yeah, like the face transcends in some sense, yeah, like that it, kind yeah. of. So yeah, it's just this transcendent, irreducible idea. He literally just invokes the most um, fantastical idea possible to to just yeah. to communicate that sense of the other. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, and he says that basically that the face is the impossibility of murder. So he, he acknowledges that people are killed every day. And he acknowledges that people look at people in the face and kill them. 
but he says that when you kill someone, you're avoiding the face or you've you've lost the face. There's a lot of kind of post Levinas. There's been a lot of psychology about how um, when people murder each other, they're doing it to objects rather than right. They're dehumanizing. People. Yeah, yeah. I mean that comes from the yeah. I mean if he was in a prison of war camp, you'd know yeah. full well that you. Um, you're stripped of your identity and you look at the Holocaust, that's exactly yeah. what they did to, to Jewish people. That's, I mean, yeah, you, to, you know, they're, they're immigrants, they're Jews, they're this, they're that, they're not people. Yeah. So yeah, yeah you, you, you objectify them, you turn them into this label, yeah. Mm. So it's a categorization and a, a complete alienation mm. that allows people to kill rather than seeing their face, realising they're another person that demands ethics from you and then still doing it you can't like stab someone in the face knowing that they're right. another person who would desperately does not want to be stabbed in the face because mm. you you in your head there's, you a, there's, shut it off, yeah. there's a switch that just goes and you kill an object rather than a person right. yeah um i think that leads into my application of it to drone yeah talk oh, about, okay. talk about drones, drone drone warfare mm. um i suppose maybe a Brief background on drones. Yeah, oh, if you if you've got the background, <laughs> I got something. Well, there's a lot of um, it's the early two thousands when drones were really used as murder weapons, basically. Mm. So they were used as surveillance. Um, so that the drones are um, they're called UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, and um, they're just big fuck off planes. Enemy UAV online. It, yeah, in the sky, that can be they're unmanned, so they can be controlled fucking a thousand miles away. There's um, drones in Afghanistan that were piloted in California, so yeah, yeah, and they yeah. use Xbox controllers and shit, don't they? They, Absolutely. they, they use joysticks, yeah. Xbox controllers, whatever. So that the whole idea, I think, the reason they used from a utilitarian perspective, this is the way they justified, is that. If they're shot down, there'll be no casualties. Preservation of life, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I take it, I think there's a bit more sinister kind right. of yeah. justifications and okay, reasons definitely. for it to be used. Right. So I'm taking it that the only reason that drone warfare has happened and is expanding, if anything, mm. um, is because it's easier to kill people. It's it's easy. You mean psychologically? Psychologically, and more effective for the wrong reasons. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on the, they they get a big screen, and on this screen they see white little dots, um, and these are people scurrying mm-hmm. around. And they they have like um, they're not going to sit there conceptualizing this activity no. with language like we've just killed three people. They're going to be like, we've um, we've jerried three tangos. They they okay. use stuff like... Yeah. No, they... A royal jerrying. <laughs> um, so British. Uh, some of the news articles I read from people, they'd done interviews with drone pilots. I'm not sure I could call them pilots. Controllers. Controllers. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. It's like... If you've got a tiny little helicopter, you're not a fucking pilot, mate. <laughs> you're a controller. Tell me that to my face. Yeah. <laughs> and I imagine like most of the modern ones are so automated now. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Much yeah, of the right. control yeah. will also be AI. Um, they all, all they see are little dots, and then they see limbs after, mm. and they they've used the words like uh, 
has splats and squirters to to like I've killed another bug splat because they're basically seeing them through like mostly an infrared display yeah. or something. Yeah. Where they're just it's just a body little heat. dot, yeah. and then the dot expands as the blood is like coming out of the body. They're essentially playing a video game with real life consequences, yeah. and it's it's completely intentional for the US government and the British government are doing it as well. Like obviously, um, for them to make it a non-reality. To dehumanise people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it's and it's, a, it's like, and the reason why I guess this ties into Levinas is because yeah. we're going back to the idea of the face, because yeah, exactly. there is no face on that infrared display. So if we're talking about conventional warfare up until drones, there was always an opportunity for you to see someone in the face and stop. Even if you're a fucking long-range sniper, you can see someone's face and you know, I'm going to blow this man's face off. That opportunity is completely abolished intentionally abolished because they know that yeah well you, look, you remember that um, incident where uh, a couple of guys I think they were flying one of those blackbird things those things that fly in like the fucking stratosphere oh, yeah. one of those yeah. stealth bombs yeah yeah um, I, th- I think those are the ones you know the one in, in uh, Call of Duty 4 the with the infrared stuff yeah. oh the AC-130 yeah that's not a, that's <laughs> not a drone right. is it I haven't played Shut Call of Duty no, right. no, no I don't think it is it's, it's, it's a plane with a massive fucking cannon on it high above the clouds and mm. don't yeah. yeah and they uh, some Americans shot some uh, British guys yeah and um, th- you hear them talking about it first they're like shit they got orange on the top and they're like yeah I think so oh fuck it fire anyway then they realise what they've done afterwards and it, it, it's like oh shit that's it it was just all too easy for you to do that. What? Why didn't you? Yeah. Why didn't you wait? Like, and I, yeah, I, I, it it just it just makes uh, warfare just that much easier. Yeah. I guess. So if we're talking about ethics, there's two levels of like the unethical side of it. You're killing someone. That's obviously unethical. Y- yeah, I would say that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Killing someone is not a great thing to do. Yes. Yeah, and I, but I, but I also, think, I also cool. think most there's a, lot, there's a lot of levels of sure. But I think I, yeah, I think most soldiers would agree. I think they do something unethical, and, and they have to they have to sort of live the unideal yeah. to achieve the ideal, and that's that's their mm-hmm. sacrifice. That's yeah. what makes them so virtuous, mm-hmm. and it's it's being informed of, of that. You know, yeah, I think I think yeah, I think I think there's it's. I mean, I don't want to come across as saying like militaries are entirely just intrinsically just awful and you know completely yeah. unethical I think yeah. the problem is war ethics is an entirely different exactly yeah. that's yeah. Yeah. realm that's the problem so there's killing people not bad not a good thing to do yeah not, not ideal generally not great you yeah. say not bad <laughs> not bad um, but then there's right. the other level of killing not people so at first they're reducing them to not people and then they're killing them I'm almost reminded of um, when the English brought, uh, well, the world kind of got their hands on crossbows and the British resisted it because um, they thought it was unsportsmanly. Because, you know, <laughs> um, the they, they kept yeah. with the long bow, even though it was, it was uh, because they they had a uh, kind of a weird sense of, of fair play. Yeah. And um, this idea of a peasant kind of shooting a, a king on horseback mm. just didn't seem <clears throat> kind of, didn't seem right. It's not cricket. Um, and it's it's um, I don't know it just kind of it ties in with these ideas of like you, a soldier doesn't shoot people in the back a soldier doesn't do this a soldier yeah, doesn't do that yeah. and it's like yeah this almost seems to like fly in the face of, of those 
ideas of honor in warfare yeah. almost um i don't know in one sense it, it is it is more surgical it is it does have like a, this this benefit of being uh accurate and like you said a lot of it is automated a lot of it is more precise this is where it gets weird though. less room for error yeah the civilian casualties of drone warfare have you heard about the civilian casualties? Uh, well, they're uh, fucking massive. Yeah. So they're shooting. They're not shooting bullets. They're shooting bombs, basically. Right. And um, a lot of the time, it is in. It's not in, just in the desert. It's not in a fucking cave. It's in civilian. I, th- I think the example I gave you is like you get something like that, or you get uh, a Taliban officer or something mm. who's at a wedding, yeah. and they just blow the whole. They, fucking they'll kill, the, they'll kill everyone at the wedding. So th- it's this. Is that because a pilot won't do that? Basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's just because they. Even if you rationalise it as, oh, he's an Al-Qaeda member, Mm -hmm. if I kill him, that is justified because that will stop other people being killed, other innocent people. But you wouldn't get a patrol bursting into a wedding and fucking shooting the whole thing up. Shooting everyone. happen. Drone. Gone. Mm. And then they can just go go home and, like, hug their kids and not think, I've killed someone today. You know what I mean? I would say in a Western context, I would say this is definitely... Yeah, it certainly makes it much easier to dehumanise for a lot of soldiers. But um, I think the problem is the examples of dehumanisation in war. I've, I've you know I've go back a long, long way before. You know, obviously, like yeah. said, drones can be in some sense a bit of a paradigm shift, going you know yeah. making it sort of mass operable um, dehumanisation in a sense. But you know, if you look at, I mean, there was when Belarus was invaded, for example. This was not that long ago. Like soldiers literally would burst into school and shoot all the children. It's like you yeah. know that's. That's a level of dehumanisation going on where they're still probably able mm-hmm. to see the faces, and like tanks would just shoot, um, you know. So it's like, you know, you did, they didn't need drones to like commit all these absolute atrocities because, again, it's like the de- the way of that they were dehumanising was slightly different. I mean, again, you know, World War Two with the Jews and everything, the way they're dehumanising. Yeah, well, I think with the with the World War Two stuff, that yeah. required an intense level of socialisation and uh, yeah. a, a huge political movement. It required the um, control of information like, with the ideology, state. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you're right, but even beyond World War Two, you get um, just for the Vietnam War, you get the Americans invading Vietnam. The enemy was Charlie. Yeah, they didn't talk about it as individual humans. The enemy was Charlie. Yeah, um, and they, they were taught, they were taught to be racist. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. words like yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. all of this is dehumanising all the time. So it's a training process, and that's yeah. what essentially the military mm-hmm. does: is train people to dehumanise the enemy. In one sense, it's kind of a it's it's kind of a comforting thought in one sense to think that it takes quite a lot to make people kill people in in, uh, in some sense it's like well people won't kill people at least without massive psychological problems unless you go to all these these efforts right. I mean like I mean Many, many, many examples in many wars of actually if you look at statistics of how many people just refuse to shoot anyone as in like they would probably be, you know, I'm a soldier, I'm going to just do my job, whatever. Then they go there and then they would be in a combat situation. I know this is just loads of accounts during the Napoleonic era as well of this happening, where they then they would get to the point where their gun is like at the you know, barrel thing and there would just be loads of smoke and noise and yeah, they would just shoot yeah, sort of randomly yeah. to look like they're going to yeah, shoot Absolutely. these people. But, you know, deep inside they're just like some you know, kid from a farm or something, you know, and at the yeah. end of the day it's very difficult for most people to do that. Well, I think this is a, a kind of unavoidable alienation and it's a kind of a systematic completely intentioned alienation like from the very start of it i think there is also kind of oh yeah an american won't get killed if because they're not there but also it's, i think that's kind of that's war in a nutshell really I, yeah it's very civilian it, casualties is another thing but yeah. like i i do think like you 
you kind of have to just take that with a pinch of salt. Like, wars exist to, to kill. kill people. Yeah. The yeah. justification is quite utilitarian as well. If yeah. you think, well, we've killed this Afghani officer because he's killed this many Navy SEALs. Yeah. Yeah. You have the numbers up, and yeah. it's just weird it, to add yeah. numbers. And also work. about, you know, ending the conflict earlier, which could potentially present... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, like, it's, it's, it's well, all this, you know... Yeah, you're, you're right. War is a is a, is a a different kind of yeah. ethics, and it's 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 a non-ideal situation. But yeah, I, to- I totally get the, like the, um, the kind of really topical use of Levinas... I think that's like, I think that's yeah. a really good way to um, to apply Levinas to, to something that actually really fucking matters. Kind of one more thing I put in my essay. It was kind of just more of a question than a a judgment of my own. But it was um, the civilian responses to drone strikes and innocents being killed by drone strikes. Mm-hmm. So um, this it, I tie this in with uh, good old Judith Butler. Uh, Who's Judith Butler? You know I've heard of Judith Butler? I have heard of them, but the audience haven't. Okay. Um, Judith Butler, Canadian, still alive, lesbian. That's all you need to know. Okay, that is all I need to know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. She she did a lot of stuff about um, gender, but then she kind of did it. She kind of was like, yeah, tick. So she, throughout the 90s, she was just like, constantly publishing like shit tons of seminal gender theory and then she was like yeah done that now i'm going to talk about war right um so she's got i forgot the name of the book but it's very levinasian which is which is a word levinasian levinasian i said well yeah sure um it's about how us as a western society Unless we see the faces of dead people, we don't. We just don't give a shit. And a recent example is of um, Alan Kurdi. Do you remember this small boy on the beach? On the beach. I was just going to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. So, was he dead in the picture? I, I never actually dead, saw the picture. Yeah. He's, he's, he's he yeah. drowned in the, and washed up on a yeah. No, uh, I never saw the beach. picture. Um, you want to see the photo? I mean, you don't want to see the photo, but you want to see the photo. Yeah, well, I'm reminded that uh, as well of the um, I, yeah, I'm not necessarily convincing to see dead people. I think you definitely need to see, suffer see struggle because yeah. like, I remember, you remember the African kid with the yeah. vultures, yeah, yeah. Like, kind of circling around, yeah, yeah. And, and of course the the, the Vietnam uh, War child, the Nepal, uh, the yeah. whole yeah, and and yeah. the guy with the gun next to his head and like yeah, yeah. So as a as a like a general society, unless you're fucking keyed into it. We survive confronted with the face, or, yeah. Or the, the, yeah. Without being confronted by the face, yeah. So this this boy face down in the in the water was like published all over the, the newspapers. That is fucking. Hard. And it was a catalyst for people suddenly yeah. deciding they care about you know. Yeah. Sort of before that, issues. before that, you heard about the numbers of people who were leaving Syria right. and the number of people who have died. Mm. Trying to leave Syria. Numbers are numbers, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, like, well, I never, numbers I never really people. understood these people who were critical, going, "Oh, now they've seen a photo. Now they can." It's like, well, yeah, it, it. I think it is very, um, very easy to forget, and all too easy to forget that people are human. I think we need. Yeah, I think I think Judith Butler's right. I think we need to be reminded of the, the human face, the human reality. Yeah, I, that was just kind of a brief yeah, yeah. kind of 
if you want another example of Levinas and the face, this kind of, you know, conf- confrontation of humanity that you wouldn't normally get does yeah. affect how people treat others ethically. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's yeah. all I want. I suppose, suppose the more cynical point of view um, is what I'm saying. It's like the problem is with that is that this idea that when an issue is suddenly humanised, it becomes sort of prevalent for people. Um, in a way, you could say, well, that's the problem there is that it's it's oh, we could potentially be misdirecting how we are. You know, it's if if there's like you know there's like a war in Yemen, and it's just like there's it's just like terrible, um, and it's like we just never hear about it. We'll just never hear about like all this all this stuff going on because it hasn't been humanised for us. But it's like you know it's it's only when these things get humanised. And like yeah, sure, it might point to an important issue, but I think part of the problem is like it is di- very difficult for people to properly direct their attention. And in a cynical way, you could say, well, um, this the use of uh, you know humanisation of certain issues can be a way to deliberately you know potentially direct people towards a certain thing. Um, and you know, in, in some cases, it can even be used to direct people wrongly, or like used as propaganda, used as like you know, um, or an unbalanced perspective of a certain issue, or what, you know, whatever it is. I think you know, there's there's this sort of second side to it, in which like, yeah, the humanization of an issue is important for getting people aware of it, but it's like it's. I think it can also be misused. It can also be a problem with how we're going to direct our attention to certain things and not to others, and you know, and that's that's partly why I think um, you know people are a bit more cynical about about these things in some contexts it's like you know it's as much as it is a good thing to humanize it's also it's also a dangerous tool to think about as well in the sense that like um in the sense of misdirection and also like um should we not be trying better to understand um, the numbers and understand the issues and understand other things without having to you know be force-fed certain photographs but obviously that's the you know, that's the question isn't it mm. how can we consider ourselves uh, an ethical kind of an ethical society we in the west everyone's like we've got higher standards than the rest of the world basically in a very cynical way we all consider ourselves better than um, fucking pakistani brides or you know whatever's going on in the rest of the world but how can we do that if we kind of ignore everything else that's going on in the world i think that's kind of the well i, th- I think i think the issue here is it, it's like we, can, we I think we can in some sense make a qualitative judgment about certain aspects of culture, but it's like you don't have to do that to say that the culture is perfect or is like mm-hmm. necessarily that good. It's like, you know, I, I would say that obviously there are, you know, certain cultures and whatever that I would say are far more primitive, you know, you could say like medieval European culture, I would yeah. say is a far inferior culture to modern Western culture, um, you know, ethically, morally for, for many different reasons. But it's like, but in saying that, I'm not making the judgment that, Western culture as is, is like, you know, anywhere near perfect or, you know, like it's, you know, I'm sure in a hundred years we're going to look back and go, well, these okay, barbarians yeah. were, you know, yeah. doing this, that, and the other. So it's, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, um, it's it's not, I don't think it's necessarily right to go fully on the relativist side, but at the same time, it's kind of like, um, it's, you know, the, the danger of the other side is to also go, well, that you know, the superiority of this means that there is, you know, yeah, you get capacity to truth. Yeah, sense of uh, linear progression. Yeah, it's exactly. like, oh, yeah, we're... Right. Yeah, cool. Which is also, yeah, but like you said about linear progression and progression in cultures, it's like, well, that's the way that, say, uh, Germany was heading in the, you know, at, at the very start of the, you know, uh, 20th century. And, like, yeah, what, the, what happened, you know, it's the like... The height of humans. You, you know, these, these civilizations <laughs> and, um, don't just, like, progress. Yeah, I mean, that they, yeah, they were... They had a very strong sense of high culture that, you know, right. philosophy was at its peak at that exactly, time. And yeah. 
so you know some of the greatest philosophers. Uh, who was it? There was a. It was a Nazi. Heidegger. Heidegger. Yeah. So. Uh,